0: Hello and welcome to the Headlines podcast. It's the week ending Sunday, May 3rd, 2020. I'm Chloe Lavasuch and I'm here to bring you some of the interesting and quirky stories making the headlines in local and regional newspapers this week. It's been a week in which Prime Minister Boris Johnson returned to work after being hospitalised with coronavirus, became a father again as his fiancée gave birth to their son, and then held the daily press briefing on Thursday, saying that the UK is past the peak of the coronavirus outbreak and is on the downward slope. Quite weak for him then. It's also the week that saw the nation celebrate NHS fundraiser Captain Tom Moore's 100th birthday on April 30th. And as always, it's been a busy week in local news too. In this week's episode, we'll hear stories about an asparagus fortune teller, who says the Spears predict May will be a good month for the UK, Armed police in a helicopter called to hunt a big cat that turned out to be a sculpture created by an 84 year old artist. And dinosaurs roaming the streets of Bradford during the lockdown. Emphasis on cheerful news this week, although there are some great public interest stories by local journalists featured in this episode too. And I'm also joined by Maxine Gordon, who's been a journalist for almost 30 years for a chat about her career and to hear about some of her favourite stories from the week. Links to all of the stories in this episode can be found in the description or, fo- or follow us on Twitter at the Headlines Pod. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast and want to keep seeing stories like this reported in the news, please support your local paper by buying a copy. Here's one to give us all hope as we finish, what is it now, week six of lockdown? An asparagus fortune teller, or asparomancer, from Bath says May is going to be a good month. This is a story from Somerset Life by journalist Thomas Malloy. Jemima Packington has cast her vegetables and is forecasting good news on the horizon for this month, which, perhaps not coincidentally, is also National Asparagus Month. The articles say 64-year-old Jemima appeared on This Morning to give a live fortune-telling. She threw her asparagus on a piece of fabric and read the pattern they created. According to the newspaper, she said she's the world's only asparomancer and makes predictions using asparagus. It also says Jemima has correctly predicted Brexit and England's Cricket World Cup win in recent times. Her predictions for May apparently show letters V and E, indicating that there will be a double celebration on the bank holiday this Friday. And buds on the background suggest alcoholic refreshments, meaning we will all have a jolly good time apparently. Dinosaurs have been spotted roaming the streets of Bradford during the lockdown. This is a story from the Telegraph in Argus by journalist Felicity McNamara. It says a whole herd of dinosaurs, or rather people dressed in T-Rex suits, have been spotted across the district. t and photographer Mike Simmons got a picture of one of the dinosaurs making its way across a zebra crossing with what looks like one of those orange lifeguard rescue floats tucked under its arm. Another person snapped a picture of the T-Rex as a runaway bride, with a veil over its face and a bouquet of flowers. One of the dinosaurs even made a birthday card for a nine-year-old boy spending his birthday in lockdown, according to the newspaper. And a dinosaur in another part of town has been nicknamed Daddy-saurus by his neighbours because he was seen chasing his little ones around in the full T-Rex costume. The article speculates if wearing a dinosaur outfit counts as PPE, personal protective equipment, it says it definitely helps to put a smile on people's faces. Police used riot shields and a loaf of Warburton's bread to herd a mental swan back home. This story is from the Daily Record, based in Glasgow, by journalist Jamie Munn. It says the bird landed on a busy road about 200 metres from its home in Murderston Park and a pair of police officers armed themselves with riot shields and bread, spending about half an hour shepherding the bird back home. According to the article, at least one other officer and two police fans were also involved in helping. It says the swan held up traffic at one point before a pedestrian appeared with a loaf of bread and one of the police officers used the bread to coax the swan to keep it moving down the street. Holiday homeowners claimed £50 million worth of the grants which were launched for small businesses in Cornwall to survive during the coronavirus crisis. This is a story from the Falmouth Packet by local democracy reporter Richard Whitehouse. And the figure was revealed by Councillor Cornelius Olivia, who said the holiday homeowners were being unreasonable – he used a different phrase – in claiming the cash. Councils are responsible for distributing money from government designed to help keep small businesses afloat during the pandemic. And Cornwall Council said it's paid out £195 million worth of the money to more than 17,000 businesses. But according to the newspaper, more than a quarter of that has gone to holiday lets. And the article says that, by classing their properties as small businesses, second homeowners can avoid paying both council tax and business rates if they're below the threshold, which many of them are. But they can still claim the grants. Councillor Olivia told the newspaper he'd been wondering how much of the government money was going to people who own second homes, registered as tax-exempt businesses. He said he was angry that holiday-let owners were claiming the money, which was made available to help businesses to survive. And he blamed a loophole in the law rather than the holiday-let homeowners themselves. The Cern Abbas giant... A historic figure of a naked man drawn in chalk into the side of a hill in Dorset has been given a face mask for the coronavirus lockdown. This story is from Somerset Live by journalist Ellie Kendall. The article says the ancient figure, which is about 55 metres in size, can now be seen wearing an unofficial face mask. And villagers said the new look had really lifted their spirits. One said it was great to see Cern Abbas Giant practising social distancing, wearing his face mask and keeping up villagers' morale. But the National Trust, which owns the site, said it didn't permit or encourage the change. Police have closed down a pub in Sheffield that was disobeying lockdown laws after the customers were found hiding in cupboards. This is a story from The Star in Sheffield by journalist Lloyd Bent. It says police raided the Pittsmore Hotel pub and found a number of customers who'd been served at the bar hiding inside. Pubs, restaurants and cafes have been closed since March 20th as part of the coronavirus lockdown. The licence for the pub is now under review. John O'Malley, licensing manager at South Yorkshire Police, told the newspaper police visited the pub and found a number of people hiding in cupboards and that the pub was clearly still open for business. Scary early estimates show coronavirus could lead to 100,000 job losses across the Glasgow region. This is a story from the Glasgow Evening Times by local democracy reporter Drew Sanderlands. And it says that it is predicted women, the young and those on low wages will be greatly impacted by the economic fallout. According to the article, Glasgow City Council leader Susan Aitken has admitted to having sleepless nights over the extremely sobering and scary prediction. But she has promised that the city will recover. Research by the Fraser of Allander Institute at the University of Strathclyde shows the drop in the economy could lead to between 60,000 and 100,000 job losses, hitting industries such as construction, wholesale and retail the hardest. The council's already put together a coronavirus recovery team, And the council leader said that Glasgow has had to come back from serious trauma before and that this is the biggest for a generation, but she's confident that the city will recover. And finally this week, a sculptor has spoken out after a huge model of a tiger was mistaken for a real big cat, leading to an armed police response and a helicopter search. This story is from Kent Online, a website I seem to feature most weeks. It's got some great stories on it, and this one is by journalist Katie Heslop. It says 85-year-old artist Juliette Sampson was working when she got a call from a neighbour telling her armed police officers were walking towards her house. She told the newspaper she walked to meet them and asked if they'd like to be introduced to a wild tiger. By that time, apparently, the police had already been told that the big cat on the loose was, in fact, a life-size sculpture of a tiger that apparently had been in place for about 20 years. According to the article, the model is about 30 metres from a public footpath and has occasionally given dogs a fright, but this is the first time it's been mistaken for a real living, breathing animal. Now, journalist Maxine Gordon very kindly agreed to join me for a chat about her career and to share some of her favourite local news stories from the week. So joining me for this week's episode is journalist Maxine Gordon. Maxine's worked in news for nearly 30 years and currently works as a features writer and PR coach with her students frequently making it onto national and even international news with stories she's helped them write. I'm thinking about the story about uh, a carrot farmer saying extreme weather will cut the carrot crop by a third but also your story about a couple offering the Pope a million dollars to go vegan. But clearly, once a news reporter, always a news reporter, because Max also gets some great news stories, uh, including a recent splash about an April Fool's prank at York Crematorium, in which a spoof notice threatened mourners with heavy fines for funerals that overrun, and led to an internal review by the council. So hi Maxine, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, So you said that you started a news straight out of university, editing a community paper in Edinburgh. Uh, So what was that experience like? What did you learn from that?
1: Well, yeah, that was, I was quite lucky really, Um, 1990, so yeah, 30 years ago, um, straight out of university, got a job editing something called the Old Town and Southside News, and it was a community newspaper, there was one of six in Edinburgh, funded by, I think like a local council, that kind of thing, or probably the EU or something like that, and yeah, it was a bit, I had been the editor of my student newspaper, so I knew the the basics about getting a, a a little community newspaper out. Yeah, it was great. Um, I worked with an advertising person, it was just me and him. He went and sold the advertising, I wrote the stories. And then back in the day, you had to um, type up the, the stories, um, cut and paste them onto boards. And then once a month, I had to take these boards on the train to Berwick-upon-Tweed and physically hand them over to the printer. And then I'd go and have a little day out around Berwick and go and get a pass, and walk around the walls and get back on the train to Edinburgh. And then about a week later, the papers would all arrive and I'd borrow my dad's van <laughs> and we'd shove them in the back and then we'd go around and distribute them around. It was a very small area, the old town in south side. It's the centre p- part of Edinburgh where, um, where I grew up. So I knew it really well. I had loads of contacts where I went to school. I even interviewed my old headmaster, who strangely enough remem- remembered me because he tried to expel me from school. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it taught me... It was really good grounding about local news, you know, that you can't actually local, go as local as you can because it's that curtain twitching, isn't it? Like people really want to know what's going on down the street. You know, if there's an ambulance on the street or there's ambulance goes past or a a police car, people hear it and they want to know and they look at the paper and now they'll look online.
0: What's happening? People just, we're just nosy and we want to know what's going on. And it's important to be sort of on the ground, isn't it? And within the community with that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, I think the other thing—it's just basic things about journalism—is about when I went to journalism college, we got taught by a great guy called Robin Thompson. He was a geordie, and he told us we always had to um, find the local gobs. So that's like the local people that knew everything and gob off about stuff, you know. And um, when I when I went up to the Oxford Mail as a trainee, you know, that's your first—that's your first job, really. They, They give you a patch, a district. And they send you out to find stories. It's a bit daunting at first. I think because I was from Scotland, they thought it was a bit rough. And they sent me to an area called Blackwood Lees in Oxford, which was a housing estate. I mean, you think of Oxford as being Inspector Morse and the university, but it's real town and gown. You've got the car workers, you've got estates. The year before I went to Oxford, there'd been riots. England was full of riots and there'd been you know really bad riots at Blackford Lease and that was the patch they gave me and I was this young lass from, from Edinburgh like never been to Oxford before suddenly in there thinking I'm going to the university a lovely town and I'm sent out to like find all these stories um, on this in this housing estate but I'm actually from a housing estate so I actually felt quite at home and got on well with everyone but again you just get great stories and it's literally just knocking on doors turning up to like parish council meetings I remember as a trainee went to my first parish council meeting and the the chief of police from oxford came to speak to the parish council i didn't know that was happening and i got a great story and it was about um boy racers joyriders causing mayhem in in the in the on the estate and i came back and you know that morning came into to work and told the news editor and it was a splash that day it was so exciting you know just going out and finding stories that no one else has heard about and then representing that community and I mean I get the same buzz now as I did back then from finding a story and it doesn't have to be the front page news just telling people stories it's just so it's it's just a privilege really and it's so enjoyable.
0: It is a great job and uh, it hasn't stopped you getting front pages now still so (laughs) definitely still got those those contacts. Um, I know you're saying that uh, one of the uh, stories that you're particularly proud of at the Oxford Mail was uh, your campaign that you ran for the victims of genocide in Rwanda while you were there. Uh, Do you want to tell me a bit about that? Because I know that you've told me before that that made quite a lot of money for... Yeah,
1: yeah, thanks for reminding me about that Chloe. um, So I was a trainee at the Oxford Mail, like an apprentice. And Oxford is where Oxfam is um, based, that's where they have their HQ. And they had asked the Oxford Mail and the Oxford Times local papers there, could they do an appeal for Rwanda? Because at the time, I think it was 1994, there was a terrible genocide going on. And um, I've just looked it up because I knew really, it was a long time ago, so I needed to refresh my memory. But there was, um, in 100 days of slaughter, 800,000 people were killed and there were mostly Tutsis, which was an ethnic minority. So it was a genocide and it was horrendous. It was really bloody. There was it was machete killings just going into villages and wiping out whole families and whole villages. And the world was kind of like just standing by, you know, it was really it was really awful. And there was a lot of refugees coming into um, the country. And they must've been in quite a lot in Oxford because I interviewed a lot of them, probably through Oxfam, and um, they put me in touch with them. Because when you run an appeal or a campaign as a journalist, you need a lot of stories. You know, you can launch it and say, isn't this terrible, but you, you need to feed that campaign. So you need story after story after story. And um, looking back, I mean, we raised 20,000 pounds, which was quite a lot back then. We are really pleased with that. And we, we interviewed a lot of people. So there was a lot of people from Rwanda in Oxford. Um, I remember once going to, like being taken to this address, it was like a bed set and going into the room and it was this girl and she was maybe about 20 or, or younger. And not much, I mean, I was only 23 or 24 then, so I was young as well, but she was a bit younger than me and she was just in bed and she was just like this frightened little rabbit. And then there was a translator just telling the story. and you know, sort of stories that I was really harrowing as a young reporter even to write about because it was so horrible. But I think the thing about what it shows you as well is how kind and generous people are. You know, we run campaigns all the time as journalists and people are just so generous. And I mean, I don't know about across the world, but in Britain, I am always astounded. You know, every time we run an appeal like children need sport relief, it's millions and millions of pounds. And then just this week, we've had that Captain Tom um, 33 million pounds almost for the NHS that's you know awesome. at a time where people have no money and people are out of work and it's incredible.
0: And local press has quite a big role to play in that as well doesn't it I mean uh, like you say just telling individual people's stories makes something a lot more personal than a national story about uh, about a figure about 800,000 people one person's story can really get under your skin.
1: I think that's the thing you know Captain Tom he's a story, isn't he? And we've all rallied around that. But I think that's the key to news, isn't it? It's about storytelling. It's about finding the people that it affects because that's how we, we, um, we're all human beings and that's how we connect with each other through storytelling. And so the essence of news has to be about people and about telling their stories and then how you can highlight a big, big issue or a big problem through that. And I think I specialised in features writing because that was a thing I really enjoyed was taking that time to get to the, the the bare bones of a story and really sort of try and understand the person and where they were coming from and then as a writer your challenge is to convey that and get the reader to have that emotional response in the through the story and um, so it's a bit specialist doing you know, being a feature writer but at the end of the day you still have to have a great story to tell and that's where your new sense comes in you know in telling good stories and all great stories start locally, don't they? All the best stories that you find in the national newspapers the next day, they all come from local papers.
0: Yes, because um, I had uh, the story about Captain Tom in an earlier podcast and I was reporting it just from a paper in Bedfordshire and I think he'd raised, you know, still an incredible sum, but it was sort of like a £100,000 and then it's just sort of snowballed. You know, it just shows that all stories, all news is local news. Um, but, That's absolutely right, yeah. And local news has changed quite a lot in recent years, uh, even in just the past couple of years. Um, So do you think it is still important and relevant?
1: It's just as important. I mean, it's never not going to be any different, is it? Because news is what is going on around us, what people are doing. all the interesting things people are doing, but also all the sneaky things people are doing. Like one of the roles of a journalist is to be super nosy, not just what your neighbors are up to, but what the council's up to, what the police up to, what's the health authority up to? You know, why can no one get a dental appointment? Um, You know, there's lots of things. You talk about journalists holding people to account, people in power, that's a massive responsibility. And that's at every level, not just at Westminster, but locally in your job, you know, in local democracy reporter, that's a really vital role. And that's important that they're being protected those jobs. My worry is as we um, go through changes, massive changes in our industry, um, in, in the media industry, but also with the current virus and the lockdown and the economic downturn, is that local journalism and journalism full stop will suffer because it needs to be paid for somehow. And, you know, li- list, people listening to this podcast, I'd like to ask them, how do they pay for their news do they buy newspapers do they have subscriptions to newspapers and um, because if they don't please do it because otherwise we can't pay for journalists and we can't pay for journalism so i think it's quite precarious the future and that makes me very sad
0: it is a worry um you know a lot of industries are facing difficulties because of the virus uh, you know and that's that's something that we're all very sensitive to but every news website that i read has had Sort of personal appeals from editors as well, saying uh, you might not realise, you know, a lot of the time we don't think about where these sort of things come from, but they all do have to be paid for. At the end of the day, people don't, you know, sit through hour-long council meetings, uh, you know, and court cases, uh, you know, for in their free time. <laughs> and exactly, I think we made a
1: mistake looking back. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we first had the internet, um, you know widely when it was widely used by people so when I started in at the Oxford Mail in 92 um, it was we just had mobile phones and they were like I'm not even sure we had mobile phones you actually had to find a phone box and call collect into the office and we had a copy taker take down your story so we didn't even have mobile phones can you imagine and my very first journalism class when i was at uni was on a typewriter that's how old i am so technology has come on so far hasn't it um yeah and i think that um sorry I totally lost my thread what were we talking about
0: we're <laughs> talking about um how much it's changed and uh you know you were saying that there's maybe been mistakes made yes the mistake the
1: i think because when we came to um i think it was when i came to York in 97 we were getting we were just starting to use the internet for research we used to have libraries and we'd go and look through them for stories and I remember being shown when I came to the York Press how to search on the internet for stories and our archive was just going online so it was starting to change then and I think then maybe the York Press started to go online and at that time you had to pay the Telegraph I think was one of the first newspapers to offer an online news service you had to pay you had to register but did you have to register anyway? To I'm not sure if you had to pay money. I think back then when we started out, that's that was our mistake. We should have made people pay subscriptions, just the same way that we, you know, that they do to buy the newspaper. And I think if we'd done that back then, we might have been in a different position. But you know, you can't change that now because people now expect everything for free.
0: That's true. You're just mentioning about calling the copy taker and things like that. Um, for sort of younger reporters. What was the process like if you were at the scene of, say, a crash or a fire? Yeah. How, how would that go from you being at the scene to being sort of on the front page or in the paper? Yeah, so what you
1: would do is you'd have to... Well, you knew where all the local phone boxes were. <laughs> um, and so you'd have to find a phone box and hope it was working. And obviously you wouldn't have money on you for change or anything. You'd, so you'd have to phone the office and... Um, you phone the officer no you must have phoned I don't know if you phoned the operator and they would put you through for a free call and they would accept it and then there was someone waiting on the other end and we had a team of people and you would dictate the copy so it would be like um um there's gridlock on the a64 after a terrible um a three-car pile-up stop new par. um police helicopter is on the scene as um, officers suspect fatalities full stop new par the road will be closed until further noticed you know that kind of thing and you would just be dictating the hardest thing was and this amazed me I remember as a trainee and um, going well, every morning you look at the news list where you would go on stories and someone always went to magistrates court someone always went to crime court someone always went to coroner's court you'd all trip off in the morning to do your jobs and you'd shadow, I remember shadowing the Crown court reporter, going to court and she would take everything down. And then you, she, there was an office at the Crown court with a phone and you could phone straight through to the copy taker. They just dictate the story again, like what I've just done, you know, the whole story. And um, that was something you had to learn to do. And it was really scary, you know, as a trainee. But then you got, you just like everything, you learned how to do it. And then you would take a trainee out and we would watch you and oh, she's quite good at that. So, yeah, it was just a skill that you learned. not massively different from what we do now because we write that stuff, don't we? But, yeah, just dictating it. Um, yeah, and then it would just, and, it would, and then it would obviously go up to news desk and stuff, and someone would check it and they might rewrite it a little bit. But you had to get all your, you know, pretty much, dictate your story, but we were trained in doing that at at college. You probably don't get that anymore, do you?
0: No, I don't think so. I can't imagine doing something like that. It takes me forever to sort the first pass. (laughs) Good
1: (laughs) training, yeah, good training, because obviously that is the key to a story, isn't it? That first sentence, the first paragraph, the intro, because if that's not right and doesn't hook the reader in, then they're not going to
0: read it, read on. Summing it up in one line. Um, so you very kindly picked out a few stories to share this week, um, which are superb choices. I'd noticed a couple of them and um, in the week myself and thought those were brilliant podcast choices. So, um, so the first is from your former paper, The Oxford Mail. Can you tell me what the Beckons have been up to this week?
1: Yes, I mean, amazing. I didn't even know this, but the Beckons, David, Victoria and the family, they're living in Oxfordshire. They're living in a little tiny little this Hamlet. I mean, it's a really small place called Great Chew. It's very pretty. Um, and they're staying there during lockdown. I mean, I don't know if they normally live in Oxfordshire, um, but I picked up this story from the Oxford Mail. Um, when Chloe kindly asked me to find some stories to talk about, I thought, well, I'll go back to either papers I've worked on or papers I know really well. So I just dived into the Oxford Mail this week, and yeah, this caught my eye. It's really nice. The Beckhams, they've been helping Age UK, and they've been um, packing you know, care bags to give out to the elderly. And I think they're also doing calls, you know, isolation calls to help people and chat to people who are in isolation. And good on them, because that's, um, you know, they're setting a great example to their kids. They've got kids. Um, Age UK actually need people to volunteer. So if you can get a celebrity like that to do good, and obviously they're all over their social media showing what they're doing. But I noticed as well that um, not that long ago, I think a couple of weeks ago, David Beckham had actually turned up um, to visit an Age UK, um, someone that Age UK were helping, a 70 year old man in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. And he was actually at the doorstep and the guy opened the door and there's David Beckham handing him his care package, doing social distancing. And apparently they were talking about the football, what else? But um, that's really sweet, isn't it? Yeah, lovely. I think it's interesting as well because a lot of people have been saying, oh, with this lockdown, we're not interested in celebrities anymore. We're going to have a whole new life after this, the new normal, they call it, don't they? And we'll be more interested in real heroes, you know, like um, doctors and nurses and bin men. And, and I think, yeah, that's really, we hope so. But I think the this show is, shows you that we're still really interested in celebrities because this was the best read story on the Oxford Mills website on, on Wednesday and Thursday. I'm so we're still, yeah, we still want to know about the celebrities. But just this morning when I was printing this out to have a look at it, but there was another story that caught my eye from the Oxford Mail, which is in the, the paper today. And it's a really good example of um, local, local journalism at its best. It's actually, has got a brilliant headline and it's, it's doing really well online. Desperate Oxfordshire housewives selling sex on Craigslist to, sur- to survive the cr- coronavirus lockdown. Wow. So this, this, this reporter at the Oxford Mail called Fran Way, It's an exclusive by her it's a really good story she spent a lot of time on this craigslist is a classified ads website and for jobs and services that kind of thing Um, and what she's found out is there's been a massive increase in people doing sex work and offering sex services and looking for sex services on this craigslist and she's actually interviewed quite a lot of people who've either put in the adverts or people who've been responding to them and it's quite alarming, and I mean, it's really good work on her part. But it's also showing how, you know, when people are struggling financially, that they will do things they might not have even considered before. And I think that's quite worrying. But it's a really great example of like a journalist doing really good work, digging around, spending time, which is one of the things I worry about. You know, if we have fewer journalists, that you
0: don't have time to get these sort of stories. So well done to Fran Wade there. I have to look that one up. That sounds like a really interesting story, and it's uh, it's as well a case of um, journalists finding stories from a situation that people wouldn't expect. You wouldn't think to look on Craigslist and see what people were advertising at a time like this, and you certainly wouldn't expect to find that, would you? So, that's. And I think that
1: it's also a very a good sign of a very good reporter. Hopefully, that's been her idea. It might have been someone else's idea, her news editor's idea. Um. But it also, I mean, as local journalists, Chloe, we would read that, story. we might come back to our office in York and think, well, not office, because we're working from home, but might say, I wonder if that's going on in York or North Yorkshire. And we could look at the Craigslist up here and see if there's something similar. Chances are it is, because why would it just be happening in Oxfordshire? It's probably happening all over the country. So a local story like that can highlight something that's happening everywhere, can't it?
0: Exactly. That's why it's important. And uh, I know you, you had a few right. other stories, particularly you were mentioning a slightly more lighthearted story about a yes, massive no. chip. <laughs> oh, and massive. the Donald's drive through as well.
1: Oh, yes. I know. I'm, I found that the story about the sex workers is a bit more serious, isn't it? But I think because we're so involved with coronavirus and every story seems to be about, about coronavirus, it's quite nice to have some other stories in the news and they seem to be doing very well and people want them. People want some light relief from it, don't they? Because stories are not just to sort of inform and educate, but they're also to entertain us. So we mustn't forget that. And we all love a funny story, let's face it, or a funny photo. And so there's plenty of that around. And I've picked one from my, my local paper in Edinburgh, where I'm from, which I grew up reading every day, the Edinburgh Evening News. And it's a story about, it's a, it's a, it's a mum called um, Sheena Curran. And bless her, she got up every morning for two weeks at 7 a.m. while her kids were asleep. And she's been working on a project to create a McDonald's drive-thru at her own home. So what she's been doing is making all the little packages for the fries and the burgers and the chicken nuggets. And um, she's even done markings on the floor, you know, where you can drive through and like, and she's got herself all dolled up like a McDonald's worker. She's perfected how to make the fries and the chicken nuggets. And then when she was all ready to go got her kids up and then she just surprised them with this drive through experience.
0: (laughs) 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 They must have loved that. I noticed there was a little video as well on the website that sort of starts out with the little um, road markings. And and it's really expertly done as well. She's really put some effort into that. It looks beautiful, the little chicken nuggets in an egg box. She's put a lot of effort into that and I think that's showed us a few
1: things hasn't it that one we all like a project to do and um, lockdown is um, if you're stuck at home and you think you know maybe that's been her outlet like doing this for her children as well because People are missing out on all the things that they're used to doing. And, they, and like I really feel for kids, you know, we are not seeing their friends and not able to go to school. And maybe going to McDonald's was like a treat for them. And, you know, they'll be missing that. And you know what kids are like? They pester you for like mad. They're probably like, mom, when can we go to McDonald's? And she's either given into that. And I'm sure she's really enjoyed doing that. And I think they've all enjoyed it. So, and we've enjoyed reading it. And just as a little aside, and I hadn't noticed this because it's nice to give a credit to the journalist, isn't it? It's written by a, a young reporter called Connor Matchett. And I know he's a young reporter because I know his mum. He's from York. He went to All Saints School. And his mum, Fiona Mallon, used to be a news editor at the press. So oh. he's running in the family. And he's off up at Edinburgh Evening News now doing a really good job and finding some great stories there. Well done, Connor.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Good work. Oh, that's good that you noticed the connection as well. And on a similar fast food note, uh, you've mentioned yeah. the, the chip story this week. We can't stop talking about chips.
1: It's so funny. isn't it? Like when the chips are down, let's talk about chips. Um, the York Press has really come to its own this week, hasn't it? With a series of stories about large chips being found in York. <laughs> I mean, it is good to have something to laugh about. When we first saw this story, I think it was um, by, by Ed Horner, another young reporter. He's one of our apprentices and he's, he's doing a great job just now. I'm reading a lot of his stories. Well done to Ed. This, um, this story came in, and I would imagine, I don't know how we got the story. Maybe you, don't, you know, Chloe, because you're, at the, you're working at the press and know what happened with the news desk. But I imagine that Oliver Dale um, maybe sent us a picture with this story. And we get a lot of readers um, sending us stories. You know, people ask us all the time, how do journalists get their news? We rely on people to send us stories. So if you've got a good story, send it in. Um, Oliver Dale lives in York. He found a giant ship with his dinner. With, I went having his tea, hold the front page, you know. I think it's a reflection of the extraordinary times we're in that this actually makes a news story, but it was very funny. And the picture makes a story. Often the picture makes a story, doesn't it? Obviously, you can't see the picture on the podcast, but there's a picture of this guy, Oliver. He's holding up this chip and it's the size of his head. And in case you're not sure about that, he's also submitted another picture where he's laying it against a banana so you can <laughs> see how big this chip is. And so. <laughs> We all, and there's been follow-ups, there's almost like a competition yeah. going on, yeah, right. chip's bigger than his chip and um, it did make me wonder though, like we're in the middle of a pandemic but is there a pandemic about around giant potatoes or something? <laughs> Where are these potatoes coming from that are making these giant chips? I think Ed Horner needs to follow that one up. He needs there's to
0: do some about I can't tell you how many pictures of chips we've had sort of in the last couple of days since that, you know, a lot of people were taking taking the mickey out of it on, uh, online, but a lot of people were saying it was a bit of fun. And then we were getting some really funny pictures. There was someone had drawn a face on an onion as their sort of, uh, is it, you know, Winston from, is it Winston, you know, from that film uh, with Tom Hanks where he's, he's drawn a face on a volleyball to keep him company while he's on his own, someone had drawn one on an onion and... Yeah, it really, it had legs, definitely. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been an interesting week. I think it's a sign of how people are coping in the lockdown. I think we may have gone bonkers, but in a slightly funny way. So. I,
1: think, I think the other thing, looking at headlines in, in local news this the week, I've noticed that definitely the non-coronavirus stories are breaking through. So I think maybe people are realising that we are in this for a long time and life is still going on. So journalists are reporting on other things that are going on as well and so again you know if you've got a story do tell your local journalists because they'll want to know about it it doesn't have to be about coronavirus and probably if it's not about coronavirus you might have a better chance of getting that story in the paper Um,
0: especially if it's something quite light because you know if it makes us laugh the chances are it'll make readers laugh too so and you mentioned as well you're going to talk about a story that you use in your uh, PR coaching quite a lot because I know that you speak to people about how to create a sort of eye-catching story and one that might sort of grab people's imaginations oh it's one of my stories that one (laughs) yes
1: it is you're right no thanks for reminding me of this I am Yeah, because people often ask, well, oh, what is interesting? What makes a story? It's a million dollar question, isn't it? And I think we all know what makes a story. Because if you think about when you're looking through a newspaper or magazine, what is it makes you stop and read something? Or if you hear something on the news, what makes you, you know, on the TV news, you really tune into it? Um, stories have to have certain factors, certain elements. They need to be interesting, obviously. They need to be intriguing, they need to be novel, they need to be new, they need to be, if they're quirky, if they're funny, um, are they giving over really important information? So they have all these qualities. And I always say, the more qualities your story has, the better a story. And there's this story that I absolutely love, and it's actually from a couple of years ago, but it's got all those elements going on. And it's actually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) coincidentally, It is one that Chloe had written. (laughs) She probably doesn't remember it. But the headline's brilliant. It says, five lambs to one mum, you, a pun, E-W-U-E, E-W-E, you must be joking. Five lambs to one mum, you must be joking. And it's about these. um, this York farm. And they had a, a sheep that gave birth to five lambs. Is that a big deal? Yes, it is. Apparently, it's a one in a million chance. So it's this miracle birth. The pictures, again, we talked about how important pictures are. If you are sending in a story to a journalist, you must send a picture because we need pictures. And if it goes online, we definitely need pictures. Um, The picture is gorgeous of the farmer with all these lovely, cute lambs. But the other thing that made this story even better was the week that this happened, the Winter Olympics were on and Britain won five gold medals. And so they named the five lambs after the five Olympic British heroes. So it's got everything going on in that story I absolutely love it and the pictures are so nice and again it's just another example of a really great local story a feel-good story and I would imagine you might know this if it happened that this story would have gone everywhere it would have been a national story I imagine yeah. And the tabloids would definitely
0: have picked it up it was definitely picked up by news agencies I remember that one because they did some great photos that's the good thing about news agencies they've often got um, a lot of photographers on staff which is less true now of local newspapers unfortunately um which is is another change of space. Um, but like you were saying pictures and video have become incredibly important with submissions and things like that you know a lot of the you know it's like the chip story that would never have gone anywhere without that I think when you ask how
1: things have changed i think ch- things have changed a lot in the sense that we're all journalists now in a way everyone's recording things all the time and journalism is the first the first account of, a, of history isn't it what's in the newspapers is like what historians will go back to goodness me they're going to look back on coronavirus and they're going to think what was this giant chip story that was happening <laughs> <laughs> i mean that'll tell them something about the mood of the nation probably um so but we're all journalists now and you can share information so easily and we because there's fewer journalists we are relying on ordinary people to be community journalists and to send us stories and give us stories and give us pictures and give us a video and we've probably never been more connected to our readers than before would you say?
0: Yeah exactly I mean it's great I was thinking when you were telling me the story about the uh, community paper that you worked on these days sort of a new story that's a new story in the morning wouldn't still be top of the website by the afternoon so the idea that you can go out and collect stories and still they'd still be stories sort of a week later seems really odd now that 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 everything yeah. moves so
1: fast. Our, our, our
0: community newspaper was a monthly. Wow, <laughs> so more featurey stories then, no uh, breaking news, no traffic and crashes.
1: Yeah, it was definitely more um, more featurey or more like planning things, you know, because it was a it was city centre, so things that were happening with local buildings and that kind of thing. Right up your street, Chloe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, all the council stories that I report on. The thing with um, everyone being a journalist now, everyone being able to submit uh, stories and pictures and things like that, do you think that devalues journalism and local journalism? I, I I can see that there's an argument that that people would say, why would I pay for your newspaper when I can read about it on my friend's Facebook page?
1: My worry is not
0: that it dev- it doesn't
1: devalue journalists because very often you need journalists to interpret these stories. You know, it's like you get it's like saying, oh we don't need bakers anymore because someone's giving them eggs and flour. I mean, they give us the material to make a story, but then you still need the journalist skill to turn it into a engaging story, whether it's writing it and then putting it online and submitting it and presenting it in an engaging way to attract an audience. So it's just getting that material. And we are relying more and more on people giving us that material. And um, what I try and do in, in the, the workshops that I do with, often with small businesses is to try and teach them actually how to write a press release, how to structure a story so that when it comes into the journalist, it's kind of, it's a bit like a ready meal, you know, you can just pop it in the oven rather than a bag of vegetables and a bit of mince so you have to go make your own lasagna. Um, Because the reality is if you've got fewer journalists, then um, if something, if a story does come to you and it's in a pretty good shape, you're maybe more likely to use it. It's a bit like, you know, if you come in from a run, and you think, I'm starving, I'm going to put my lasagna in the oven or I'm going to start from scratch. I mean, what would you do? It's just human nature, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's just the way that the industry goes as well. But mm. you know, it does mean that, that more stories get out there and that's always uh, good for readers. So <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Maxine, for sharing your stories and um, stories about your career as well. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank
1: you, Chloe. Thanks for having me on your wonderful podcast. <laughs>
0: I'll stop. <laughs> and that's everything for this week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to Maxine Gordon for taking the time out to chat with me and to Dan Bean, as always, for his help and encouragement. If you're interested in getting involved by sharing interesting local news stories from the week, Please do get in touch with me on Twitter through at The Headlines Pod or at Chloe Lavasuch. Thanks so much and I hope you'll be back for more next week. Stay safe out there. Bye!